composed over a period of 800 years by many different authors. It contains some of the oldest and most recent writings of the entire Old Testament. So although these psalms were written for communal worship, this book is not a book of hymns. It's not a hymn book. King David, who wrote nearly half of these psalms, is said to have written over 4,000. So in a period of 800 years, if one man wrote 4,000, the total number to choose from, I don't know, 10, 20, 100,000, what's really important is that these 150 were gathered together and intentionally arranged into this book. So there's obviously significance and something special about them. The first thing we'll look at is emotion. The Psalms must be read as poems, as lyrics, as songs, with all the emotion that they intended, all the emotion that is within them, more so than the logical connections of script. Because poems and song give body to what was otherwise invisible and inaudible beforehand. So the best example of that would be like a film score. If you imagine a film score with no music, the emotion becomes very hard to relay. So if I have just seen a dinosaur, how, how do I relay what I'm feeling? I just, no one's ever done this. This is a, uh, hang on a second. This is how I feel. I've definitely just seen a dinosaur and I can express myself. This is how we know what the person is feeling. Otherwise, it could just be awkward. <laughs> it, might, it might be good to keep this playing the whole time. Thank you, Jeff. That was fantastic. So they must be read this way. Otherwise, we can miss what's in them and think we see something that's not. Second thing is their common characteristic. They all share the same pattern, which is parallelism, which is the practice of saying the same thing twice using different words. Think Katy Perry's hot and cold. Hot and cold, yes, no, up, down, so on. Different forms of this are used throughout the Psalms, but it doesn't really matter. The result is the same. And this is what makes them so distinctive. If we don't recognize this as pattern, this is another way that we can get false meaning out of what we're reading. Why is that special? It also happens to be a significant technique that Jesus would use for teaching. Matthew 7, 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. It seems that by applying this rhythm, these lessons become incredibly simple and almost impossible to forget. So this is the teaching preference that our Lord uses. And another reason why it's significant is because regardless of translation, this pattern doesn't disappear. Consider all of the translation the Bible has had. The Lord's teaching style does not change. Number three and the last one is the structure. 
There are three distinct categories of psalms, and the placement of them creates a unique design and message that, again, we would likely miss. It needs to be read from front to back. The three categories are praise, the awe-filled sense of confidence in God's power and everlasting character, lament, the appeal to God himself, seeking deliverance from trouble and distress. The experience of pain often drives the psalmist to question the sure foundation of God's power and sustaining authority. They are experiencing God as distant And I will come back to this. And then finally, Psalms of Thanksgiving, which are somewhere in between these two. But the praise is based on reflection of lament and that God showed up. Throughout the book, lament is quite heavy at the beginning and fades off towards the end. And praise is lower and comes higher. This is the pattern of the book that's important. It appears to be a guide to prayer. So this is either wonderful luck or perhaps divine wise provision of God that poetry written by many different people at many different times over a period of 800 years that was going to be translated into all different languages should have its main characteristic be one that cannot disappear, span across the entire Old Testament, so chaos up to the point of Jesus, is structured to reflect a guide to prayer and reveal so much about the difficulties of life and God's character and how he continually shows up. The point I'm trying to stress is that it's not a hymn book, this is God speaking to us. That is the overview. The psalm we're going to look at today is Psalm 23, a psalm of David. You've probably seen it. It's pretty popular. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So there's three themes to this psalm. Our journey through life as Christians. God setting a table before us and dwelling in the house of God. So let's look at the journey. If we think about Abraham, who left family and home and to travel endlessly in search of the new home that God had promised, or after the Exodus, Israel as a nation experiencing 40 years of wandering before entering the promised land, or Jesus telling his disciples, Go into the world and preach the gospel to all creation. The Christian life seems to be one with a need or feeling for constant advancement. Not advancement in status or things, 
but in purpose, where we belong, and relationship with God. It's very easy to feel discontent and to question if what you are doing is adding value or providing yourself fulfillment. That's obviously, that's how everyone feels, whether you believe in God or not. It's very easy to feel that way. But I feel that the belief in God makes these feelings even more confusing and complicated because we're Christians. And once you're a Christian, you feel fine all of the time. (laughs) I am very happy all of the time. Right? That's how we're supposed to feel. I don't think so. The journey, this journey is very clearly illustrated in this psalm. As are the challenges, but so too is God's presence, his love, protection, and provision. God is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. We understand that a shepherd leads their flock and ensures they have all they need. And here, this is the green pastures and still waters. This is the really pleasant scene, but it's not at the end of the story. We see it here placed at the beginning. There will need to be another journey because as the grass fades and the water dries up, staying still would likely mean death. As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, this is the difficult part of the journey, the the really rough times. But the psalmist continues, I will fear no evil for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is the assurance of God's presence and protection in the midst of this difficulty, making the psalmist have complete faith in confidence to listen to God and move forward. This is where we need to get to. Back in Australia, before moving here, I worked a job uh, manufacturing management. It was very grim, very bland, not fulfilling in any way. Um, creatively, emotionally, etc. And I did this for 12 years. I was a Christian the whole time that I was there and became more and more unhappy. That's not funny that I was a Christian the whole time I was there, Josh. (laughs) Anyway, I was a Christian the whole time I was there and I became more and more unhappy and I knew this I was very aware of this. I was aware that I was getting no fulfillment out of this life. But I stayed. And in staying, I became more and more angry at God because I just chose that this was his fault, the reason this was my life. And then an opportunity came where it was potentially time for change. It was going to be quite easy to make a significant life change. When I started thinking about the different things I was going to do, I was really excited and I felt full of life. So what I did is I went and had an interview at another manufacturing facility and I got that job and then I started working there. And as I was driving home from that interview, I felt really disappointed in myself and I spent the whole trip home telling God that I had made the decision that he wants me to make because it's responsible and I'm going to take care of my family And this is what a good guy does. Telling God all the reasons why I was doing what he wanted me to do. And then as I pulled up at home, 
someone in the back seat said, you're still not listening to me. And I say that because I actually had to turn around and felt frightened because it sounded like someone was in the back seat and they said it to me. There was obviously nobody there, but it was so clear that this is God. So even though that was after the job interview and I was starting this job, that also became the day where I decided something is going to change because God just spoke. And I will fast forward that that was the catalyst for change and eventually is what led us to moving here. But moving here, life has been immeasurably more complicated and stressful, turbulent, uncertain, compared to Australia where everything was consistent and stable. And I was thinking about this. I also have an unexplainable new sense of joy. I can only link this to the decision to follow God. Because on paper, it doesn't make any sense why I should feel more fulfilled, why I should be feeling joy. An example of what I'm talking about is I was here and considering all these difficulties and the stress and everything like that and kind of decided, okay, this was a big mistake. I've made a huge mistake coming here and started to feel like I would give anything to go back home and just have that job again and, and go back to what our life was. And as I was thinking that, Alana, my wife, said, hey, come and look at this. And she had found a video and the video was of Christmas Day, maybe two years prior to this point, in Australia, and she set up a camera for Christmas morning, and then she wakes up, and Scout, our daughter, comes out, and they start opening presents, and it's incredibly cute. And then, much later, I appear, and I don't even acknowledge what's happening. And I sit down, and I pick up my phone, I pick up my work phone, and I have the two in my hand, and I am completely disengaged. When I watched this, I, I could not even relate to the person that I was seeing. There is no way I could do that now. I don't even know how it was possible then. That's how grim it was. But I was so ashamed. That's the difference of joy. The circumstance doesn't really matter. The circumstance is kind of just a thing. Here I've been in the thick of stress so many times now where people aren't able to make me feel better. But God does. He continually shows up and makes me feel better makes things make sense when they shouldn't. I remind myself of this as often as possible. Being aware of how he shows up and continues to show up 
This is far more important than focusing on outcomes. Because when I moved here, I thought moving to America, th this is going to be my thing. Now I'm going to be happy forever. I won't be depressed anymore. But it continually happens in life. It, there's nothing wrong with having goals. That's good. But the goals are not a finish line. Everything just continues. After one thing, there will be another thing. And the only thing that is consistent is God. He is our shepherd. We shall not be in want. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. What are our enemies? Our enemies are the things that prevent us from listening to God's voice, from trusting God, from being able to dwell in his presence and experience joy. These enemies are the horrible thoughts of guilt, shame and fear that continually creep into our minds to ensure we feel terrible about ourselves. Recently went to a friend's wedding and they had a, a silent disco. It was way more fun than I thought it was going to be. I loved it. I loved it so much that these things, they apparently have quite a range. You don't necessarily have to stay inside the silent disco. You can go out of it and it's, the headphones still work. So I was having a great time and I woke up and I was like, that was such a good wedding. And I woke up to a text message with, that was video footage of me singing Queen Bay's Drunken Love out in the common area where people are just trying to relax, <laughs> pretending to be on a surfboard. Thank you for sending that footage through, Hannah. I hope you're having a good vacation. I now did not enjoy that wedding. I embarrassed myself. Shame. But back to my job in Australia. Every time I would question, this can't be what my life is, this can't be what I'm supposed to do, nasty shame would just come out of nowhere and say, who do you think you are that you could do anything different? You will fail if you try something else. So I stayed. I stayed because I was afraid, because I trusted these words of shame, I felt awful about myself, and then I created more drama in my head that if I do try something and I will fail, then I will fail my family and I will lose everything. So I must stay here to keep everything consistent. And then moving here, and it doesn't, it's looking like it's not working out. This is pretty turbulent. This is no good. Then, again, guilt and shame. I told you that this was not going to work. You decided to do this. You brought your family here. You've put them in this awful predicament. This is your fault. So then, spending day after day completely in fear about money, becoming more and more anxious about life in the future, then I'd yell at the kids for something completely insignificant. And then shame pops up again and says, Oh, Pete, that was actually quite a bit like your dad's character. 
what you just did there, and you know how that is the last thing you said you would become, looks like that's what you are. Enjoy what's already planned for you in life, Pete. Failure and misery. There's so many forms of this. There's so many forms. And guilt and fear and shame, they team up together. One comes in and it leads to the next. And then that one will pass the baton on to the next one. And then the cycle just continues. They keep us stuck in the past. We become stuck fantasizing about how different it would be if we could go back and change this one thing, do something differently. And you can do that so much so that you get stuck in that and the lines between reality and fantasy become blurred. You start to consider, this is how I will go back and change that. Because you, you're so caught up in the despair of what's happening. This is where God seems completely absent and you try to take over. We create some of these enemies ourselves. Social media is the best example of this. If you feel good, if you're having a good day, spend 20 minutes on Instagram. You'll feel terrible about yourself. <laughs> this person's in New York, this person's in the Bahamas, this person just got married. It'll make you feel like you're failing. And very little of it is real. Some of these things come from our childhood and we don't even realize it. We didn't have a choice. Some of these things are caused from people hurting us. And that relationship hurt is terrible. It can affect everything. Bad relationships can make you no longer able to go to certain places, certain restaurants, certain cities. You can't drive certain ways. I have trouble liking people that drive a certain car because of a failed relationship. I assume that person's going to be exactly the same as that person. So I immediately don't like them. That's absurd. <laughs> Whatever the cause is of these things, the result is the same, which we end up in pain. Too many of these things means too much pain. And too much pain is when the journey becomes too difficult to bear. This is when we become like the lamenting psalmist and we're questioning if God has any power or presence in this. Is he distant? Is he around at all? So this brings me back to the lament psalms. In Psalm 109, the feeling of hatred is extremely apparent. This was written by King David, and it goes on and on for quite a while. He's been betrayed, people have conspired behind his back, he's been run out of his authority. And he goes on with things like, um, may my enemy lose his job and all his income, may his wife leave him, may his wife become a widow, may his children become orphans, May they be beggars for the rest of their life. So it's pretty gnarly. These, these psalms of lament are very largely ignored. And I would assume that that's because 
They make us feel uncomfortable. We often don't really know how to deal with what it is that we're reading. But this is the word of God, so there must be something in it. There must be some use for it. And there is. This is the emotion. The emotion is the only important thing here. Not the words. This is the realness of resentment expressing itself with perfect freedom, without disguise, without shame, and it highlights the natural result of injuring someone. This is God showing us that we should come to him when we feel this way, that he is with us, that he is completely heartbroken with us, and he wants to restore our soul. They show us that lament is an appropriate response to being hurt, an appropriate response to all the evil, injustice, and tragedy we witness in the world. And when we allow ourselves to be angry at this, and when compassion pours out of us for someone that is in pain, this is a link to God. We must acknowledge to ourselves and to others that being in Christ does not mean that our cares, troubles, difficulties, pain, and danger of the world are removed from us. We remain in the presence of our enemies. But they're not from God. He only speaks to us through love. Not guilt, not fear, and not shame. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. We need to ask and constantly remind ourselves in what ways, day by day, God is preparing a table for us in the presence of our enemies. And this leads to dwelling in the house of God. So how? How do we dwell in the house of God? Is this a future hope or wishful thinking? Or is it something that we can do now? As long as we think the house of God as being a place that we need to get to, as long as we're looking for an experience that takes us out of the pain and uncertainty of living, we will miss what it means to dwell in the house of God forever. Psalm 23 shows us that God's house does not mean some sort of translation out of our current circumstances of pain. Instead, it means to dwell with God in the very presence of our enemies. It is possible says the psalmist, to experience the gracious presence of God and to receive the abundant life that he offers in the midst of life as it presently is. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Again, another link to Jesus, who said, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. When I consider myself back in Australia at work, I would describe myself as dead inside. And Jesus is saying the exact opposite of that here, that that's what he will do. With Jesus, the restoration of life has begun, but the world is definitely not perfect. It's very much broken. And this is why our enemies can flourish. But through Jesus, we can live his perfection and restoration now. 
That is, we can already break into what is not yet. Most often, this is a choice that we need to make to acknowledge that God is present and active in and around us. Again, no coincidence that our Lord says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to our Lord. So that comes back to the Psalms of thanksgiving. And what are they teaching us? So in Psalm 23, we see it begins with the psalmist being thankful for what God has obviously done. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And then as soon as it switches to the journey, the difficulty, the psalmist switches to, I know that you will do this. You will protect me. I will fear no evil because you will protect me. This is what the effect of prayer of thanksgiving. When you remind yourself what God has done, how he showed up, you then have confidence in the midst of your crisis that he is there and you will be safe. God wants us to come to him when it's terrible, not turn our back on him. Then through thanksgiving, we acknowledge the way that he was with us. And this will lead to us praising how great he is. And then we will be dwelling in the house of God. He is the source of life and light. And when we are in his presence, we cannot help but know love, care, joy, restoration, justice, compassion, generosity. And we also can't help but seek to live these things out. When we bring these things to each other, we are then with him and he is with us. This is the feeling of continual advancement and it is dwelling in the house of God.